Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. 24 years ago, a St. Louis jury found Lamar Johnson guilty of murder. He's been serving a prison sentence ever since. But in July, the Office of Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner dropped a bombshell. It said Johnson was actually innocent, and it asked for a new trial. Last week, St. Louis Circuit Court Judge Elizabeth Hogan denied that request. She didn't look at the merits, only the timing. Gardner's office, she said, was 24 years too late. Joining us by phone to discuss this remarkable turn of events is Trisha Bushnell, director of the Midwest Innocence Project. Do you have a question or comment about Lamar Johnson's case? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Trisha Bushnell, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So to a layman, Judge Hogan's ruling last week seems incredible. Can a man be held in prison indefinitely just because the timing is bad? I mean, I think that's the same question that we all have as well. Certainly, um, there's no discussion about his innocence. There's no discussion about the facts. Uh, simply an argument that he's too late. We obviously don't believe that's what the law says. We think that the, and uh, we know that the law makes uh, significant lenient things for people who are innocent because it cares about fairness. It should be caring about fairness and equity and exactly what we have here, that there's an innocent man in prison. So Johnson was a drug dealer and there was a witness who put him at the scene. But what have we since learned about that witness's testimony? So the sole eyewitness in this case, I mean, his testimony was always incredible, even at the time of trial, but even what we know now. Um, So this was a shooting that happened at night where two perpetrators came down uh, wearing ski masks, so their faces could never be seen. Um, this, the, the surviving individual, it was a shooting, one uh, person died, the other person survived, and he identified um, Lamar. But what we now know, he's, he's recanted that identification, and what we know is that he was actually receiving payments in exchange for that identification that were never disclosed, and that those payments were actually sitting there in the circuit attorney's files, which is one of the things that she found when she made this determination that he was innocent. And so these kind of payments, they are paid to witnesses and informants sometimes, but they are absolutely things that that need to be disclosed in court. Is that the issue there? Absolutely. So he was paid out of the victim's restitution fund, and certainly he was a victim in that he was one of the two people on the porch that was shot at when the other individual, Marcus Boyd, was killed. But that doesn't keep the state, that doesn't give the state permission to hide when payment to the key eyewitness, right, the only piece of evidence, uh, solely to, to link Lamar to the crime, to keep that evidence away, it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter that he was a victim or not. That was exculpatory information that needed to be provided to the defense, and it was not. And he's since said that he doesn't know who shot, um, who shot him or that there was somebody else that did it? He says that he has no idea who it was, and the reality is he could never have known who it was. Mm-hmm. It was nighttime. These individuals were wearing ski masks. He, he could never have made an identification. And in fact, he didn't make an identification originally. It wasn't until uh, there was a discussion made about these payments that he was able to go in and suddenly identify Lamar Johnson. That's some interesting timing. Um, and, and yet this all does come after Lamar Johnson exhausted his appeals. On the other hand, you've got no fewer than 43 prosecuting attorneys who filed an amicus brief siding with your client. What are they saying here about the timing issue? Well, what they are pointing out is that prosecutors have an obligation to do justice, right? It's not simply to get convictions. And that they themselves, working in other organizations that have these conviction integrity units, are doing exactly that, going and finding when there is an injustice and trying to correct it. It doesn't make a difference that it's 24 years later that you're correcting it. 
And, and also, I, I don't think it would be simple enough to say that Mr. Johnson yeah, exhausted his appeal. Certainly, he applied uh, for appeals over and over and over again, but he never had an evidentiary hearing on those appeals. The court never took the time to give him process to hear the evidence of the innocence that he was trying to present. So to simply say it's too late, he's never had the process at all. That's interesting. Um, I know that the judge in this case asked the state attorney general to get involved. It's a pretty complicated matter there, but just give us a quick um, um, overview. What is he doing in this case? Uh, so, yes, so the, the circuit attorney represents the state in cases, right, that are within her jurisdiction. Um, and despite that, the judge appointed the attorney general to also represent the state while noting that the circuit attorney was still on. Uh, in that briefing, the attorney general also said that it believes neither the court has the authority or ability to grant relief to Lamar um, and also that it was too late. But again, makes no comment and no discussion about the evidence that there is an innocent man sitting there in prison. We did get a statement from Attorney General Eric Schmidt. We asked if his office wanted to be on the show, and they did politely decline. However, um, they asked us to read this statement. Reviewing convictions and ensuring justice is done is is an important part of our justice system. There are laws and Supreme Court rules in place precisely to ensure the integrity of that justice system. Efforts to avoid, subvert, or remove those laws and rules do more harm than good to the administration of justice. Such efforts can sometimes have the consequences of undermining the very due process to which criminal defendants are entitled. The applicable laws and Supreme Court rules provide for an orderly, established legal process for Mr. Johnson to pursue his claim of newly discovered evidence. His lawyers are well-versed in that procedure, and Mr. Johnson, assisted by his lawyers, has pursued sued that process before. In this case, Mr. Johnson's lawyers and the circuit attorney's office attempted to avoid those established procedures. Additionally, this is an issue that deals exclusively with jurisdiction and not questions of innocence or guilt. The court appointed the attorney general's office to protect the rule of law and the integrity of our justice system and correctly decided that Mr. Johnson and the circuit attorney needed to pursue the correct procedure. Trisha Bushnell, any sort of quick response to that, um, that statement there? Well, certainly. So as a first matter, the Midwest Innocence Project representing Mr. Johnson has never filed anything before. So that just as a, as a fact is, is incorrect. But never in this case, the, you mean? No, no, not okay. in, on behalf of Mr. Johnson. Yes. Um, but certainly what isn't addressed at all is what is the circuit attorney's ability and process and procedure to correct this injustice? And if the attorney general believes there is a process for her to do that, to meet her duty, he has yet to articulate that. Uh, to say that innocence plays no role actually is to just deny United States Supreme Court precedent and Missouri Supreme Court precedent about the absolute role that innocence serves, about uh, how procedure must give way to equity and justice. So, you know, certainly he may he may say that there is some issue to be held, but I, I cannot see how uh, the rule of law would be undermined by freeing an innocent man from prison. That's Trisha Bushnell of the Midwest Innocence Project. We are also joined today in studio by two guests, Mike Jarvis and Jenny Schrappen. For years, both have supported Lamar Johnson through letters and ultimately with face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, Mike Jarvis, Jenny Schrappen, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks You're for welcome. having us. Thank you. Jenny Schrappen, you first mm -hmm. got involved with this. Tell us how Lamar Johnson even got on your radar. Well, I was approached by my deacon at my church, and he asked if I would be interested in writing to a young man in prison. Um, would I? And I said, certainly. And I began writing Lamar a long time ago, maybe a little over 20 years ago. 20 years ago. And you started writing someone that you'd never met, didn't know personally. Um, what did you end up learning about him from these letters? Oh, from his letters, I, I could sense how intelligent he was by the way he wrote, 
And just his handwriting, his penmanship was just utterly amazing. I had taught school. I do. I, I was a retired teacher. I am now, rather. But I mean, I, I know how important that is. And that that amazed me. And, and just his, the way he would write very meaningful letters and shared what was going on in his life or had, but not too much. And it was easy. He was easy to correspond with. Mm-hmm. Mike Jarvis, you ended up getting involved through your co-parishioner, um, Ginny. How did that happen? Well, um, I was on the parish council at the time, um, and uh, Christian Service was the committee I was involved with. And uh, I, I knew Jenny from coming to Mary Mother to church, and, and I could tell how involved she was and how incredibly uh, motivated she was to get involved with social justice issues. And she talked about Lamar, and uh, and she said, you know, I want to go visit, but I can't really get anybody to go with me. And I thought, well, <laughs> I can go with you. So so we planned on going, and um, and we went. And I met Lamar, and I got the same uh, impression from him that Jenny did. And, you know, it, it wasn't about his innocence right away. He just connected as a good man, and we could see that. And as time went on, obviously we got more involved in the innocence part of it. But uh, it, it was just so nourishing seeing this man stay true to his faith especially as uh, time went on and uh, and became you know just a, a wonderful relationship we uh, we care very dearly for him so jenny started writing him about 21 years ago i understand you got involved about eight years ago yeah somewhere around okay. so in these there. are both long-standing relationships here <laughs> yeah yeah um, mike you ended up becoming one of his connections to the outside world how were you able to help him with this case as he's trying to prove his innocence well, there was um, some information that he said he we could get try to get through the Sunshine Law, and uh, and I really knew very little about that process. And uh, he said, told me what to do, walked me through it, and he said, that's probably going to cost a few bucks. And, and I said, okay, as long as I don't have to take out a loan, we'll do this. And um, so so we got a hold of the people that uh, in the research department, and just so happened that this guy happened to know my name and one of my cousins. And <laughs> That's so St. Louis. Yeah, isn't it, though? So uh, I said, well, listen, can you try to find this stuff? He says, well, it's in the basement in the archives. And he says, I guess I can try. I said, just please make an effort. And, and sure enough, he did. Got all the information that was lingering down there, you know, just waiting to be surfaced. And Got it to Lamar, and, and that's when things really started jumping, yeah. Trisha Bushnell, did, uh, <clears throat> was what Lamar was able to find out about his own case, was that critical in starting this process? Uh, I mean, certainly, like, like many innocent folks, the information that uh, the defendants bring is helpful for us to begin our process. And, and Lamar, you know, he's been working really hard, like any innocent person would, to try to prove his innocence. So all of this information was critical, but quite frankly, none of it will ever be as critical as what the circuit attorney was able to find because that was evidence that was not disclosed. That's a good point. Um, Jenny, having been his friend for years, you must have been so excited in July when the circuit attorney comes out and says, this man is actually innocent. What was your reaction to that news? Uh, I was ecstatic. I couldn't believe it was actually happening because mm-hmm. this is what we've been waiting for for years and years and years and years. And, and then I was, could be a part of it. And you must have thought at that point that it was going to be a, only a short matter of time before you would see him on the other side. Exactly. W- what went through your mind as this next step happened where, hey, he's still stuck in prison? Well, not being a lawyer, uh, 
it was a little more than I, uh, I a lot of it I didn't understand I suppose and and even though I I do understand a lot more of it now I I feel race is a big thing with this with his life that the sentence alone mm-hmm. and because he is a black man he is, is a man of color and he was poor is poor and was poor and couldn't af- afford so he had public defenders and I just don't think this would have happened. Trisha Bushnell, how common is that in these cases where you end up looking at them years after the fact, where a person's poverty or issues even of race end up getting them into a situation like this? I, I mean, it's absolutely common. It's, it's tragically common, especially here in Missouri, where our public defender is vastly underfunded and under-resourced. What it means is that if you are poor, finding justice is significantly harder, if even possible. And, and race is always a factor. It, it's, a, it's, you know, quite frankly, what we would argue one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions. We know the vast majority of people who are exonerated are black men. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Um, and, and it's our job to fix that and to prevent that from happening. So after this big setback last week, um, have either of you, um, uh, Mike Jarvis or Jenny Trappin, have you been able to talk to Lamar? Yes, um, been, we, I've been able to talk to him a few times, and I actually went to see him a week, two weeks ago. Okay, and what's his state of mind at this point? Is he livid at the justice system? Um, amazingly, he is a very mild-tempered, genuinely sweet person. And even though you would think he would be, and I think I would be. 24 years in prison, exactly. and still yeah. it goes but on. He, yeah. He he just always will say I think it's it's he also said I don't think it's really about me he said I think it's beyond that now it's these mm-hmm. different areas of concern that yeah and I will share with you Sarah that um, Lamarck actually called us last night my wife Helen and I are, are the ones that visit with Jenny and um, he started off with saying you know I said how you doing he said I'm just kind of in a funk and I said I understand. I mean, you know, all the information now is out there, which is all he ever really wanted was to just get the truth out there. And he would be willing to be decided on, defined by the truth, more than willing. And and uh, we had some conversation and talked a little bit about his faith, which I think is really the thing that is, is holding him together right now. I mean, he's he's realizing that, you know, it's a system Corrupt though it may be, uh, disjointed though it may be, it's still the system in place. And he's going to put faith in the MIP, which has done an incredible job for him. That's the Midwest Innocence Project yes, that Trisha works for. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know he's hanging in there. Trisha Bushnell, we have time for just one last question, and that is what is your next legal step here? Uh, well, certainly everyone is will be appealing this decision and moving forward. It, it just cannot be the law that a prosecutor cannot correct an injustice, which is their ethical and constitutional duty to do. And, and it just can't be that we, as, as you said, as lay people, as anyone, are okay with the evidence being there and an innocent man still sitting there anyway. Trisha Bushnell of the Midwest Innocence Project, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Mike Jarvis and Jenny Strappen, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.